shining sea. We must intervene to break this cycle of dependency. ADM and Cargill, General Motors, Ford and Boeing. Good morning. How is everybody this morning? funny to me whenever i hear the um the stuff from last week sometimes i <laughs> makes me feel kind of funny like that song that was just playing like do 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 it always reminds me of whenever i hear that kind of stuff it reminds me of um uh lenny bruce uh, lenny bruce did this song with uh eric oh god i'm not gonna screw up his last name but he's the black piano players first name is eric and um he had this song <laughs> He had this song that was like, a, damn your ass, Mr. Cruise Chef. Don't come fooling around up in here. Because when you come fooling around over here, we're going to come fooling around over there. That's if we don't secede from the union. And something, something. And Hirohito is <laughs> like, fuck the goddamn, uh, you know, it's like. It's it's just the same thing she's doing. It's a spoof on those uh, patriotic songs. It's like, and Hirohito, damn, the asses too. But, uh, <laughs> so whenever I hear that kind of stuff, it cracks me up. It just, uh, it's so weird. But, um, anyway, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, this is G-Money, and uh, Wu Stein is out uh, taking care of the world, making sure it's a better place wills in a state one at a time and uh so what i figured since it's irene day and i don't really feel like um just chit-chatting by myself right now but maybe i will a little later oh one thing just since i'm thinking about the goddamn hurricane two two things one it's so i i really get why like especially like a teenage atheist it would drive you fucking nuts to look at twitter because all it is is just people sitting around going like, praying for you, praying for you, praying for you, praying for you. It's, it, it, oh, <laughs> which, you know, is horseshit. But if I was like 15 and reading that shit, I would just be like, it would have driven me fucking crazy. I'd have been sitting in there just like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. So um, I, I appreciate their restraint at least. And, um, oh, the other thing was really funny to me. Um, some asshole tied up like 30 pets to a tree. <laughs> That's fucked up. But the worst part is all these people like just moaning and complaining about pets when I'm steadily seeing people in like live shots that are homeless just laying out on the street. I'm like, That's such horseshit, right? At least in my eyes. For my money, a human life is worth way more than your fucking pet every day of the week. And that's not just because I'm not a pet guy. It's because I'm biased. I'm human biased. <laughs> if, I, if I had to pick between saving you or your dog, you're, you're coming. You, you're going to have to live somehow if you can face the day without the dog like you faced the fucking 20 years or whatever you had before you had the fucking thing so anyway it just drives me weird like 
it's so callous and like just it just flies right over their head like as if as if the dog anyone could like do anything like <laughs> right if you needed a dog to like get you off a roof good luck brah good luck good luck with that shit anyway i got a really great show um i'm gonna do a bunch of escapes today i figure because that's what people are gonna be doing over the next couple days and the first i'm gonna do is typhoon right that's a little music <laughs> Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations presents Escape, a new series of programs of which this, the fourth, is Typhoon by Joseph Conrad, produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Of all the great authors who wrote of the sea, none so captured the wonder and the horror of it as did Joseph Conrad. Tonight, we escape to the China Seas in his great story, Typhoon, told in the words of a certain Mr. Jukes, chief mate of the China coast steamer Nan Shan, a young man of very remarkable perceptions. I've been sailing the China Sea long enough to see some strange and terrible things, but nothing as bad as that was. Why, God himself forgot us, and the whole blinking universe set out to do us in that night. It was the... Oh, but that comes later. I guess you can't really understand what happened on board the Nanshan without knowing something about our skipper, Captain McWhir. Stupid McWhir, I called him. And after sailing with him for three years, I ought to know what I'm talking about. My eye tagged him right off, first day he came aboard to take command. In Liverpool it was, and Mr. Siggs, who was one of the owners, was showing him around the deck. There's no more modern ship afloat. <laughs> I might say again that you've come to us very highly recommended, Captain McQuarrie. We've a great deal of confidence in you. Uh -huh. 
Thank you, Mr. Siggs. She's a brand new ship and a good ship. There's no reason why you shouldn't continue in command of her as long as you like. Hmm, well, that's, uh, that's fine. She'll be the smartest thing afloat in the China trade. Why, <laughs> she's put together like a Swiss watch. Precision built from stem to stern. Wait, uh, just a minute, Mr. Siggs. What is it? That lock. Uh, lock? Uh, what lock? Here, on the cabin door. What about it? You'll notice how it's been set in the frame, somewhat cocked at an angle. The ship starts rolling a bit, and the first thing you know, it snaps open and leaves the door swinging. It really should be fixed, Mr. Siggs. That's Captain McWhirr, the best berth he'd ever had. New command, a brand new ship. But instead of pinching himself to see if he's awake, he complains about a lock on the cabin door. Oh, yes, see what I mean? Captain McWhirl, I, I see what you mean. I'll have it attended to right away. I, I think you'll do all right. Oh. Thank you, Mr. Siggs. Well, everybody knows what the China coast is. You haul out of Bangkok for a quick run up to Singapore and then shove off for Hong Kong. Two days ashore, and you do it all over again. Three years of it. Three years of heat, smells, weather, copra, silk, and tea. Along in there somewhere, the owners decided to transfer the ship's registry to the Siamese flag. Don't ask me why. They just did, that's all. Anyway, I can tell you I didn't like it. When you grow up under the Union Jack, you figure to go on sailing under it. Not that the skipper, of course, could understand that kind of a feeling. Oh, no. Not old stupid McWhirr. Aye? What is that, Mr. Jukes? They uh, just sent the new flag out from shore, sir. Here it is. Oh, fine, fine. Unroll it. Let's have a look. Ah, yes. In my opinion, sir... It's a queer kind of flag for a man to sail under. Oh? And what's the matter with it? Well, it, uh... Just looks queer to me, that's all. Well, now, let's see. A white elephant on a red field. Oh, just a minute. I'll look it up in the book. Hmm. Yeah, here we are. Siam. White elephant on a field of bright red. Length exactly twice the breadth. So. Well, there's nothing wrong with this flag, Mr. Jukes. Oh, isn't there? Not a thing. I hardly thought there could be. After all, these people ought to know how to make their own flag. It stands to reason. Does it now? You must have it confused with some other flag, Mr. Jukes. Well, all I can say is... Of course, you'll have to take care of the seamen. Don't hoist the elephant upside down. That is before they're quite used to it. I... I I presume it might be taken for a signal of distress. And in that case, uh, well, the way I see it, that elephant stands for something like the nature of a Union Jack in the British flag. Oh, you think so? Well, it's like a bloomin' Noah's Ark, that's what it is. Mr. Jukes. I'm sorry, sir. I can't see where the color of a flag could anywise affect the navigation of a ship. I... Uh... All right, sir, I'll instruct the hands. It'd certainly be a most distressful sight to see that elephant hoisted upside down. Well, that was Captain McWhirr. Couldn't get a thing through his head if you drew him a picture. And that's the skipper we had to sail under on the maddest, wildest trip that any coaster ever took. 
We were loading out in Singapore. Half the cargo had already come aboard. The sun was blazing, and the smoke from our stacks hung over the decks like a blanket. The Nanshan's winches puffed away aft, and the cargo chains creaked and clattered across the combings. I was in the waist supervising the loading when Mr. Rout, the chief engineer, came up. Hey there, Jukes. What's going on down there on the dock? Looks like a blooming army. Well, I don't know, Mr. Rout. Must be a mob of coolies on the move. Uh, here comes the captain. Could be some of his doing. Uh, Mr. Jukes. Aye, sir. Keep the forward queen dead clear of cargo. There'll be 200 coolies coming aboard, and we'll plan to bunk them down there. Good Lord, where are they bound? Fu Chow. We'll have to put in there this trip. Yeah, but we're not fixed to handle passengers, sir. Oh, they'll bring supplies aboard with them. Every man's got a comfort wood chest, so you'll have to nail deck buttons down there to keep them from sliding. Yes, sir, I'll see to it. I've all been working on a plantation north somewhere. Two-year contract. They're dying to get home. It wouldn't have been quite right to turn them down. You may as well start them coming aboard, Mr. Jukes. All right, sir. Ollie number one, boy, all the same. Listen, you savvy, huh? Ollie fellow, catch him here, topside, catch him, step, step, bottom side, all the time, chop, chop. Single file now, one fellow, one time, all the time. What do you suppose they carry in those boxes? Oh, I suppose their personal belongings, Mr. Jukes. And, of course, their two years' pay in silver dollars. Well, they're as vicious a looking bunch of murderers as I've ever seen. Murderers? Oh, come now, Mr. Jukes. One or two of them, maybe. But in the main, I'd say they're honest workmen. Have to be to stick out a two-year contract on one of these plantations. Just the same, sir. We'd better not take any chances. Oh, I checked the lading weights carefully, Mr. Jukes. We can carry them without any overloading at all. I mean that... All right, sir. I'd better go hide the silverware in the officer's mess. Hmm. He's a hard lad to understand sometimes. I could say I had a premonition right then, and I wouldn't be lying. Anyway, that's how it started. At the hottest time of the year, 200 half-civilized coolies aboard, a captain with no more imagination than you could stick in your ear, we steamed out from Singapore and laid a course for the port of Fu Chau. Jukes, I don't like it. I don't like it a bit. Well, what don't you like about it, Mr. Rowe? Well, the looks of things. Something ominous about it. Oh, there's a bit of a swell running all right. There's not a breath of wind. It's uncommonly hot, that's all. Gives a man the jumps. <laughs> You're as bad as the second mate. He's been groaning around like the voice of doom all day. Well, uh, Mr. I don't Jukes. Know. Mr. Jukes! Oh, that's the old man. I'll see you later. Uh, keep your steam up, Mr. Rowe. calling me, Captain? I was, Mr. Jukes. Uh, what was all the long conversation with Mr. Rout? Oh, I, why, nothing much, sir. I, I didn't see any harm in talking a bit. I'm not on watch, you know. Oh, no, no, nothing wrong with it, nothing at all. I just wondered what you could find to talk about. Well, uh, different things, I don't know. I've seen people on shore sit around a table and talk for two or three hours. I never could understand it. It's just conversation, that's all, about nothing in particular. Mm, seems pretty silly. Well, you've noticed the barometer, no doubt? Yes, sir, it's dropping. Falling fast. 
Quite low now. Take a look. I'll say it's drumming. Bad time of the year for that sort of thing. Very bad. Anything you want me to do, sir? Oh, no, no. Must be some uncommonly dirty weather knocking about somewhere. Eh, Mr. Jukes? Yes, sir. Well, that's all. Just thought you ought to know about it, that's all. Uh, carry on, sir, carry on. Everyone, all right, mate. Uh, them coolies must be having a time of it down below. Lucky for them, the old girl rolls easier than any ship I've ever seen. Hey, you just wait. Oh, you think we may be in for it, huh? Oh, no. I don't think anything. You're not going to make a fool out of me that way, Mr. Jukes. I didn't say a word. What's the matter with you, second? Why shouldn't you say what you think if you're a minder? Oh, no. You don't catch me. Whoa, there's another one. That's pretty rough. Now, whatever is about, we're steaming right into it. <laughs> you just try telling the old man that. And why shouldn't I? Matter of fact, I think I'll ask him about this cross swell. It's getting worse all the time. I've known skippers to break some right good men for saying a whole lot less. Uh, Captain McQuarrie. Ah, uh, yes, Mr. Jukes. What is it? The swell is getting a good deal worse, sir. Yes, I noticed that in here. Anything wrong? Well, I, uh, I was thinking about the passengers. Huh? What passengers? Why, the coolies, sir. Then if you mean coolies, say coolies, Mr. Jukes. A man ought to say what he means. What about the coolies? She's rolling her decks full of water, sir. I thought you might want to put her head at the swell for a bit, until this goes down, of course. Hmm, so that's it, eh? Put her head at the swell, four points off the course. Well, it's just for a while, sir. A swell as high as this can't last long. That stands to reason. Mr. Jukes, take a look at the barometer. Good Lord. Yes, exactly. It's a dead calm outside, isn't it? There's not a breath of air stirring, sir. Only that cross swell. I've been reading in the book here about storms. It's a funny thing. If a man believed everything written down here, he'd spend half his life running to get behind the weather. If I was to go by what this fellow says, I'd alter my course and come booming into Fuchau from the north. Four days late, 300 extra miles in distance, and a pretty bill for coal on top of it. I tell you, Mr. Jukes, if I knew every word in here was gospel true, I couldn't bring myself to do that. No, sir, I guess not. And how's a man to know if the book is right? If you dodge around a spot of dirty weather, how do you ever find out it was there in the first place? Answer me that. No, Mr. Jukes, there's things that a man can't get from books. I've thought it all out this afternoon. We'll hold her steady as she goes. Whatever you say, sir, you're the captain. I guess I'd better write up the log. I'm going on watch. Good. I dare say we're heading into something a bit out of the ordinary. Call me at once if anything shows up in the night, Mr. Jukes. All right, sir. I'll see to it. And, uh, Mr. Jukes. Yes, sir. If you're going into the chart room, please close that blinking door. I can't stand here a door banging. Yes, sir. Eight p.m. Swell increasing. Ship laboring heavily and taking water on all decks. Still a dead calm and very hot. Batten down the coolies for the night. The barometer is still falling. All appearances indicate an approaching typhoon.
here she goes. That's all we can do. Aye, sir. I'll sure try to. Well, do the best you can. Aye, aye, sir. Mr. Dukes. Mr. Dukes. Aye, Captain, I'm coming. Stand by. Over here, Mr. Dukes. Starboard bridge rail. Right, sir. Coming over. Uh, Mr. Dukes, why didn't you call me? Oh, there was no warning, sir. It is all of a sudden, about five minutes ago, blasted right out of a dead calm. Mm, the book was right in some parts, anyhow. How's it going in the wheelhouse? Agnes, look out, sir. Hang on. What about Hackett? He's on the wheel. Second is putting up shutters. The window glass will go if she starts breaking any higher. Oh, she'll break higher, Mr. Jukes. Much a, higher. It's a happy thought. You haven't altered her course? No, sir. Heading straight at the wind. Good. Nothing else we can do, Mr. Jukes. Understand? Yes, sir. Some things a man can't find in books. Just keep her at it. That's all. We're done for, for sure. What's that, Mr. Jukes? You say something? I said. Is there any chance at all, sir? Can she live through it? She may. We can hope so long, at least. She's a good ship. That's all a man can ask. What's that? Somebody yelling? It's below us on the foredeck, sir. Up here, starboard bridge. Man shouldn't be on that deck unless he has to. It's a bit dangerous. There, sir? Over here. What's the trouble, bosun? In Chinese, sir. Wait, hang on. The Chinese. What about them? They've all fetched away, sir. One big lump. It's horrible. Yeah, now what do you mean, fetched away? Rolling around in a hole in one big lump. Screaming like blooming maniacs, sir. All adrift. Mr. Dukes. Yes, sir. I can't make head nor tail of this. I guess you'd better go below and see to it. Put things in order. Well, what shall I do, sir? I can't tell you up here. Find out what's wrong. Straighten it out. That's all. That's all. Take the bosun with you. I'm going to try for the wheelhouse. All right, sir. Come on, bosun. All right, sir. Just straighten it out. That's all. Well, how's the wheel stand, Hackett? As steady as she goes, sir. You realize, of course, we've hit a typhoon? Aye, sir. Sorry I can't give you relief. Can you manage a while longer? I'll hold her to the course, sir. As long as there's a ship beneath her. Yeah, that won't be long. Oh, anything wrong, second? Wrong! We're all as good as dead men, that's what's wrong. Oh, now, I wouldn't say that. She's still afloat. Ah. And we've got it lucky here on deck. Plenty of chance to see what's coming before it hits us. A man always feels better when he can see what's coming. But it's a different story down below there. Not having knowledge of what's going on. Not knowing if we're afloat or sinking. Now there's the lads that's got it tough. The ones down there in the engine room. Come on now, swing to it. Keep it moving. 
time now for the steam to drop. Here, ride that throttle, Field. Can't let her rip her shaft out when she breaks clear of those wells. Hello, Bridge. Hello, Bridge. Confound it, why don't they answer the speaking to them? Can't tell if they're dead or alive up there. Hello. Hello. Yes, Mr. Rout. Captain, how is it on deck? Bad enough. It depends mostly on you. Well, so far so good. We're holding a full head of steam. Good. We'll need it. Don't let me drive her under, sir. Have to take a chance. Can't see 20 feet up here. Got to keep moving enough to steer. I understand, sir. Count on us. Getting smashed about a good deal. We're doing fairly well. As long as the wheelhouse stands. Wait. Wait. Hold on. Hello. Hello. Is that the captain, Mr. Rout? I've got to talk to him right away. Wait a minute, Jukes. Something's happened up there. Hello. Hello, Bridge. You still there, Mr. Rout? Right. Anything wrong, sir? No, not now. The second mate's lost, though. Overboard? Oh, no. Lost his nerve. Awkward circumstance. Had to knock him out, too. Too bad. You hear that, Jukes? Yes, let me talk to him. Captain, Jukes here. The bosun and I just took a look at the tween deck. It's them bloomin' boxes, sir. They've all broke loose and smashed to bits. And the coolies are fighting like crazy men for them silver dollars that's rolling around. Fighting? We can't have fighting on board, Mr. Jukes. There are 200 of them, sir. They're all trying to kill each other. I can't have it, Mr. Jukes. Put a stop to it at once, do you hear? Put a stop to it? How? They're crazy mad. They'll kill anybody that came on that deck. You're second in command, Mr. Jukes. Use your authority. Make it clear to them. We simply can't have fighting. Make it clear to them? Oh, yes, sir. After that, you'd better gather up all the money. I can't have it lying about on the deck. Get the motion to help you. Wait, here it comes. Gee, Arsifat, there's the one that does it. That, uh, that must have swept the deck from stem to stern. Hello, hello, Captain McGuire. You all right up there? Everything's all right, Mr. Rout. All the boats and half the starboard rail carried away. Nothing serious. There's nothing to worry about, Mr. Rout. Carry on. Nothing to worry about. Carry on. <laughs> hey, you're all right, Captain. As you say, sir, carry on. Carry on? Hey, now, hey, now, where are you going? Where are you going, eh? Where do you think I'm going, you loudmouthed old windbag? Out on that deck to get myself murdered. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Nothing serious, Jukes. Nothing to worry about. The whole blooming world's falling apart, and I'm out picking up silver dollars. Captain's orders. Come on, Bosun. <laughs> Don't miss any old jukes. Carry on, boy. Carry on. <laughs> No help for it. Our gallant skipper says to stop the fighting. Use our authority. All right, then, quiet down. Come on, Bosun. Aye, sir. Stow it there, you fools. Cut it out there, do you hear me? Authority, huh? They're clean out of their heads. We gotta drive them to the bulkhead. Back up, now. Hey, none of that. Stay to it, Bosun. We gotta show them what for. Nothing else to do. Back up there. Captain's orders, you know. Follow me, Bosun. I'm with you, sir. Yeah, I don't. I was just thinking, sir. Yeah, what about back there? No fighting allowed. Skipper's orders. I was just thinking. Oh, you don't. What if the old lady could see me now? Uh, she'd say, oh, you jolly sailor lad. Keep over there. Jam him up, Bosun. Into the bulkhead. 
Captain. Where are you, Captain? Over here, Mr. Jupes. Uh, you got everything cleared up down below? Oh, oh yes. We, we took care of everything, sir. I thought you would. The wind fell all at once, stopped cold. It's been like this for ten minutes now. If you uh, think it was an easy job to bring that mob under control... Uh, the coolies? Oh, I dare say it wasn't. Had to do what's fair by them, though. Uh, Mr. Jukes, that barometer in there stands at the lowest point I've ever seen a glass in my life. You mean there'll be more of it? The worst yet, according to the book. It'll break sudden now. Any minute. A puff or two of wind, and then it hits. She's taken a horrible beating, sir. She has indeed. And she's in for a worse one. We haven't much chance, have we, sir? She may come through it. She's a good ship. There's the first puff. Mm, it'll hit us hard when it comes. You left them pretty safe, did you? The coolies? We strung lifelines, gives them something to hold on to. Good. I'd like to give them all the chance we can, whatever happens. Oh, they'll be all right, sir. I broke out rifles. Parade of the crew. Put them to guarding all the companionways, leading off the team deck. You armed the crew, Mr. Jukes? Oh, sure. We won't have any trouble with them now, sir. Mr. Jukes... Please have those rifles returned to the magazines at once. What? There'll be work for every man aboard in a few minutes. I can't spare seamen to stand around and hold rifles when it isn't necessary. Isn't necessary? Don't you realize those savages will think we stole their money? But they'll tear us to bits if they ever get out of that deck. Oh, I think they'll understand we're dealing fair by them. Collect the rifles, Mr. Jukes. Captain, it's suicide. The best thing we can do is turn the whole mess over to the authorities and Fu Chow. If we ever get there... Well, I don't know. I figure that when anything happens on shipboard, it's up to me to settle it on shipboard. Part of the duties of commanding a vessel, Mr. Jukes. I've no doubt I'll be able to reach an understanding with these men later. Understanding? You ought to have seen him a while ago when me and the bosun was down there. Lost their heads a bit, I guess. No wonder at that when... Here she comes. Pick up those rifles, Mr. Jukes, and something else. Yes, Captain. If anything happens to me, you'll be in charge. Only advice, keep her facing it. Best way to get through, facing it. That's enough for any man. All right, Captain, I'll remember. And one thing more, Mr. Jukes. Yes, sir. Something that always helps at sea is to keep a cool head. Just keep a cool head. Oh, no, keep a cool head. A stitch in time saves nine, a rolling stone. What in the name of heaven do you do with a man like that? There was a clear blue sky and bright sunshine the morning we steamed into Fu Chow Harbor. Mr. Rout was leaning on a hatch combing, smoking a pipe, and the bosun lounged on the foredeck, waiting to pick up a line from the wharf. And the captain? Well, he was engaged in the most unusual right. occupation. Keep moving. He was sitting at a table on the foredeck, handing out silver dollars to them blinking coolies. All divided up even, the same amount to each one. Craziest thing you ever heard of in your life. You see, the way the captain figured it, since those blighters had all worked for two years at the same rate of pay, then their savings ought to all be about equal. As you can see, of course, that wasn't necessarily true by any means. wasn't even legal. But you couldn't tell him anything. Well, that's that. Uh, Mr. Jukes. Yes, sir. Coming, Captain. Well, Mr. Jukes, I've disposed of our little collection of silver dollars. Now, that's great. 
Only wait till those boys get ashore and file claims against us. Oh, no, they won't do that. As a matter of fact, they were quite pleased at having it arranged that way. Figured it might avoid a lot of arguments later. They, uh, they sent a spokesman to thank me. Well, I'll be... Mr. Dukes, you may as well give all the hands six hours leave before we start working the cargo. Whatever you say, Captain. Oh, yes, and uh, before the carpenter leaves, I wish you'd have him fix the lock on that port cabin door. What? That seems to have got broken somehow. Uh, during the storm, I suppose. I, I can't stand to hear the door banging, Mr. Jukes. Aye, sir. I, um... I don't suppose it matters that the ship is battered from stem to stern, half her topside carried away, and smashed till she looks like a bloomin' Tinson freighter. Mr. Jukes, I don't understand you. You don't understand me, sir? Do you understand that we've come through the worst typhoon on the China Seas in 20 years? We're the only ship that got through? It's true. I suppose we were a bit lucky. Lucky, sir? With 200 murdering cutthroats running loose aboard and the very heavens doing their worst? We had a job to do and we did it. That's all, Mr. Jukes. That's the important thing. Yes, sir. That's, uh, that's all. That's all, he says. A job to do. A bit lucky. What can you do with a man as thick as that? But then, as I started to turn away, Captain McQuarrie said something else that surprised me. With emotion wrung from the very bottom of his soul, he, he uttered words I never thought I'd hear coming from so, so stupid a man. But I'm glad we brought her through, Mr. Jukes. Truly I am. She's a good ship, Mr. Jukes. A good ship. I should have hated to lose her. I, I should have hated to lose her. Typhoon by Joseph Conrad was adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield and produced and directed by William N. Robeson with Frank Lovejoy as Jukes, Raymond Lawrence as Captain McQuirr, and Cy Kendall as Ralph the Engineer. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Feuer. Escape is presented by the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations each week at this time. Next week, we invite you to escape to Paris of 500 years ago in Robert Louis Stevenson's story of a fascinating adventure, the Sire de Maltois d'Or. And so, good night until next week at this time, when again it will be time to escape. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I was just thinking about um, some uh, other Irma stuff. I did like the guy that um, decided to... <laughs> it reminds me of an old joke I used to do. This guy went, uh, put up a Facebook post to uh, shoot the... Um, what do you call it? Hurricane. That's a word for it, George. Try it again. Hey, so he wanted to shoot the hurricane. And it did remind me of my old joke. I was like, well, it's like trying to shoot bees... You know, like if you had an infestation of bees and you just decided, well, fuck this. <laughs> it's just as useless. It just shows you how, like, dumb a gun is. But um, it's, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I was thinking it'd be hilarious that uh, 
some fucking hillbilly down there just like, hey, man, I believe the, the Kennedy assassination now, man. I've seen a fucking bullet make a hard left. <laughs> like, fuck this. Bullets can make hard lefts, hard rights. Uh, you know, maybe a hurricane showed up during the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> Who knows, right? It's all fake news, right? Anyway. Um, so I got another one of these, but um, on mutinyradio.fm. And uh, fuck it, let's go to it now. It's uh, this one has uh, one of my favorite people in the world, one Mr. Jack Webb, and um, it's called A Shipment of Mute Fate, which is pretty cool. Did you miss out on that big football game last week? Can't get rid of that head cold? Want to get away from it all? CBS offers you Escape. You are groping your way slowly through the dark hold of a ship at sea, moving carefully step by step searching intently for something you dread to find because you know that this ship carries a cargo of death. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations presents Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to a harbor front in Venezuela and a grim voyage that started there as told by Martin Storm in his gripping story A Shipment of Mute Fate. I stopped on the wharf at LaGuaira looked up the gangplank toward the liner Chan K, standing quietly there at her moorings. The day was warm under a bright tropic sun, and the harbor beyond the ship lay drowsy and silent. But all at once in the midst of these peaceful surroundings, a cold chill gripped me, and I shivered with sudden dread. Dread of the thing I was doing and was about to do. But too much had happened to turn back now. I'd gone too far to stop. So I set the box down on the edge of the wharf, placed it carefully so as to be in plain sight and within gunshot of the captain's bridge. And then I turned and started up the gangplank. I knew what I was going to do, but I couldn't forget that a certain pair of beady eyes were watching every move I made. Eyes that never blinked and never closed. Just watched and waited. Oh, I beg your pardon. What? Mr. Warner. Hello, Mother Willis. How's the best-looking stewardess on the seven seas? Well, I'm, I'm fine, Mr. Warner. I, I guess better run along now and get on with the show. Now, wait a minute. That's a fine greeting after two months. Well, it's just that I'm so busy. I don't believe a word of it. Sailing days tomorrow. You're simply avoiding me, that's all. Oh, no, really, I'm not. And on the trip down from New York, you said I was your favorite passenger. But I'm only... Here, wait a minute. What's that you're carrying in your apron there? Oh, it's there? nothing. Uh, just supplies. Supplies? Well, let's have a look, huh? No, please. What do you know? It's a cat. It's Clara, Mr. Warner. Mm-hmm. Mr. Bowman said I had to leave her ashore, and I just couldn't. Well, who's Mr. Bowman? The new chief steward. Oh. 
Clara's been aboard with me for two years, and I just can't leave her here in a foreign country, especially with her condition so delicate and all. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, I hope you get away with it. You... you won't tell anyone? Not a soul. As a matter of fact, if things don't work out right, we may both end up smuggling. board on the trip down two months ago, Christopher. I'm very glad you're coming along with us on the run back to New York. Thanks, Captain Wood. There is one thing, though. I'm having a little trouble with the customs men here, and I wondered if you might... I can't do it, Christopher. I just cabled your father this morning. Told him I'd done it for you if I possibly could. He sent a request from New York, you know. Yeah, I thought he would. I wired him from upriver last week. I hate to refuse, but it's absolutely out of the question. Well, Captain Wood, I'm afraid I don't follow you there. Responsibility to the passenger, son. We'll have women and children aboard. On a liner, the safety of the passengers comes ahead of anything. But with proper precautions. Something might happen. I don't know what, but something might. You've carried worse things. There isn't anything worse. And any skipper afloat will bear me out. Now, Christopher, I simply can't take the chance, and that's final. <laughs> Final. Well, it wasn't final if I could do anything about it. I hadn't come down here to spend two months in that stinking backcountry and then be stopped on the edge of the wharf. Two months of it. Heat, rain, insects, malaria. I'd gone clear in past the headwaters of the Orinoco, traveled through country where every step along the jungle trail might be the last one. Oh, Sanchez. Si, senor Warner. You better start looking for a place to camp. It'll be dark in a little while. Uh, si, senor. Very soon we turn to river. Camp on rocks by water. This very bad country. This very bad country. You've been saying that for ten days now. Very bad country. Well, si, senor Warner, this very bad country. Yeah, we'll skip it. For all the luck we've had so far, it might as well be Central Park. Uh, Central Park? Uh, I don't understand. Well, never mind. If we don't find hey, some... Wait, 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 wait. Hey, hey, what's the matter? Quiet now. Sanchez, what's wrong? They're in the path. See? Bushmaster. Bushmaster. The deadliest snake in the world. Bushmaster. Its Latin name was Lachesis Muta. Mute fate. It lay there in the center of the path, a ten-foot length of silent death, coiled loosely in an undulant loop, ready to strike violently at the least movement. Here was the one snake that would go after any animal that walked, or any man. It lay there and watched us, not moving, not afraid, ready for anything. The splotch of its colors stood out like some horrible, gaudy floor mat lying there on the brown background of the jungle, waiting for someone to step on it. Here was what I'd come 2,000 miles for, a Bushmaster. Sanchez! I didn't want that snake killed! He no kill, senor. He gone. Bushmaster very smart, very quick. Must always see bullet in time to dodge. Well, anyway, he's gone, and the only one we've seen in five weeks. Oh, we find other. This very bad country. Well, lay off that gun the next time. Don't shoot, you understand? Why you say no shoot? You want Bushmaster? Sure, but I want it alive. Hombre, Sir Cristo. Senor Warner, you tell me you want Bushmaster, but you no say alive. You're getting $200 for it. <laughs> for dead man, what is $200? Tomorrow we go back to Caracas. I'll make it 500, Sanchez. I catch water snake, rattlesnake, any other kind. But I no catch Bushmaster. Sanchez, I'll give you $1,000. We go back to Caracas. Well, it cost me 1500 American dollars. 
But three days later, Sanchez brought me the snake in a rubber bag. He was shaking so hard, I thought for a moment the thing had struck him. One thing you make sure, Senor Warner, not turn him loose in Venezuela. Because he know I the one who catch him. And he know where I live. All right, Sanchez, I'll keep an eye on him. También he know you pay me to catch him. All the time he watch and wait. You no forget that, Senor Warner. Because he no forget. Not ever. Well, after going through all that trouble and danger and laying out 1,500 bucks, I wasn't going to let a pig-headed ship captain stop me at the last minute. At least not as long as the cables were still in operation between LaGuaira and New York. Morning, Captain Wood. The boy at the hotel said you wanted to see me. That's right, Christopher. Uh, sit down. Thank you. Uh, seems you weren't willing to let matters stand the way we left them yesterday. I'm sorry to go over your head, Captain Wood, but I had to. The museum sent me all the way down here for it. And I'm not going to be stopped by red tape. This will be the only live Bushmaster ever brought to the United States. Mm. Yes, and if I had my way, but... Uh, well, orders are orders. I got a cable from the head office this morning. All right. I suppose we talk about precautions. I'll handle it any way you say. Got to have a stronger box. That crate's too flimsy. Well, it's stronger than it looks. And that wire screen on top would hold a wildcat. But anyway, I bought a heavy sea chest this morning. I will put the crate inside of it. it sounds all right. You got a lock on it? Heavy padlock. It's fixed so that the lid can be propped open a crack without unlocking it. The snake's got to have air. But in dirty weather, that lid stays shut. I'll take no chances. Fair enough. I will keep the thing in my inside cabin where I sleep. I can't have it in the baggage room. And nobody on board's to know about it. Whatever you say, Captain. But we won't have any trouble. After all, it's only an animal. It doesn't have any magical powers. I saw a bushmaster in the zoo at Krakus once. Had it in a glass cage with double walls. It had never moved. Just lay there. Look at you as long as you were in sight. Gave a man the creeps. I didn't know they had a bushmaster at the Caracas Zoo. They don't. Now... Found the glass broken one morning and the snake gone. Night watchman was dead. They never found out what happened. Well, the watchman must have broken the glass by accident some way. The way they figured it, the glass was broken from the inside. Well, we sail in four hours. We steamed north into the Caribbean with perfect weather and a sea as smooth as an inland lake. The barometer dropped a little on the third day, but cleared up overnight and left nothing worse than a heavy swell. But in spite of the calm seas and the pleasant weather, I found myself feeling more and more often an ominous foreboding. I was developing an almost unnatural fear of that snake. Well, I stayed clear of the passengers pretty much. Got the habit of dropping into Captain Wood's quarters several times a day. He kept the heavy box underneath his berth. I'd approach it quietly and shine my flashlight through the open crack. Never once could I catch that 12-foot devil asleep, or even excited. He'd be lying there, half-coiled, his head raised a little, staring out of those beady black eyes, waiting. He'd still be like that when I'd turn away to leave. Maybe that's what bothered me, that horrible and constant watchful waiting. What in the name of heaven was he waiting for? Well, 
Well, hello there, Mr. Warner. Oh, how are you, Mother Willis? Aye, but you and the captain spend an awful lot of time around this cabin. I'm beginning to think the two of you must have some guilty secret. Oh, no, nothing like that, Mother Willis. I don't know about Captain Wood, but I... Well, I certainly don't have any guilty secret. Quite a swell out there, Mr. Bowman. Yeah, it's a little heavy, all right, Mr. Warner. Just a storm passed through to the west of us yesterday when the glass dropped. Think it missed us then, huh? Yeah, that's that's what the mate figures. Sure stirred up some water, though. <laughs> This'll put half the passengers in their bunks. Makes it great for my department. Two-thirds of them will want a steward to hold their heads. They'll keep Mother Willis so busy she'll have... Wait, look at the size of that wave. Huh? Great Jehoshaphat. We're going to take it on the port bow. Hang on! Well, that was a freak if there ever was one. Not another wave in sight. You see him like that sometimes, even in a calm sea. Well, I got to get below, Mr. Warner. That water probably did some damage on the officer's deck. Yeah, I suppose it... What did you say? Uh, the wheel companionway was open on the port side. Ridge cabins must have taken a pretty bad smashing up. They're right below the, uh... Here, uh, is something wrong, Mr. Warner? No. No, nothing at all, Mr. Bowman. At least I hope not. I looked first for Captain Wood and couldn't find him. Of course, I knew it was only one chance in a thousand, but the chances against that freak wave were one in a thousand, too. Well, I couldn't waste any more time, so I stumbled down the companionway and along the passage to the captain's cabin. Oh, oh, come on in, Mr. Warner. Mother Willis. Why isn't this cabin a mess? Trying to get some of these things out to dry. Yeah, well, I just wanted to check. Where's that box that was under the captain's bunk? Threw it out on that, Mr. But where? We didn't know. It was nearly dark when we met together uh, again in the charge room. I don't get the whole, I don't get thing at no all. no other way around it. We've risked all the time we can. We've got to warn the passengers. Well, how we do it, Captain? Call them all together in the lounge? No, if we did anything like that, we'd be asking for a panic. We'll get one, whether we ask for it or not. Uh, pick a few men and go through the cabin decks. Tell them individually, inside their cabins. Watch for any act that looks as though it might cause trouble. And we'll keep an eye on them. Handle the crew the same way. Right, all right, Captain. Okay. Now, as soon as you've finished, arm all the deck officers and start searching again. Our only chance of preventing a riot is to find that damnable snake. The slow nightmare that followed grew worse by the hour. None of us slept. All the ship's officers, not on duty, kept on with that endless search. Passengers locked themselves in their cabins or huddled together in the lounges knowing all the time that no spot on board could be called safe. Fear was a heavy fog in the lungs of all of us, and every light on the vessel burned throughout the night. Morning came and brought no relief. Terror and tension mounted by the hour. There now, Mrs. Crane, stop getting yourself all worked up and go back to your cabin. The horrid things probably crawled overboard anyway. You're just saying that. You're paid to say it. You don't know. Nobody does. Now, now, everything's going to be all right. Oh, if you could only do something. If all of us could only get off the ship. They could fumigate it. Yes, that's what we've got to do. We've got uh, to get off the now ship. Now, wait. We've Mr. Bowman. Mr. Bowman, she's going to jump. No, you don't, lady. Let me go. Let me go. Oh, not oh! good. 
Nice work, Mr. Bowman. Get her down to a cabin, whatever you do, don't turn her loose. Well, you never know when it might strike you. You can't put on a coat or move a chair without risking your life. Now, something's got to be done. It might be right here in this lounge. All right, mister. You better quiet down, take it easy. Take it easy, huh? Well, you're a great officer. Why don't you do something about it? That thing might be crawling around here right under our feet somewhere. I said shut up. Are you trying to start a panic? I got a right to talk. I don't want to die. Nobody's going to tell me. The second night passed and morning came around again. A gray and rainy day, just as grim and tense, dragged past, and the night came down again. Third night of the terror. Again, every light burned and the whole ship seethed in the throes of incipient panic. Faced by a horror they'd never met on the sea before, crew and officers alike were on the verge of revolt. Passengers sat huddled in a trance-like stupor, ready to scream at the slightest unknown sound. At seven bells, I made my way forward to the chart room and found Captain Wood bent over a desk. Oh, hello, Christopher. Come on in, sit down. Well, it's got to be somewhere, Captain Wood. It's got to be. I don't know. You could search this ship for six months and never touch all the places aboard. We can only hold out for two more days we'll be in. What's the home office say? Oh, here's the latest wireless from them. Keep quiet and keep coming. <laughs> What else can we do? How is it on the decks? Pretty bad. Anything could happen. Yeah. That's why I took the guns away from the men. One pistol shot and we'd have a riot on our hands. Oh, the whole thing's my fault, Captain Wood. That's what I can't forget. Oh, take it easy, lad. There was only some way I could pay for it myself, alone. No, I know how you feel, but it's no more your fault than mine. Or the man who asked you to bring the snake back alive. Nobody planned this. You'd better try and get a little sleep. Sleep? Mr. Bowman made some coffee down in the steward's galley a while ago. You better go down, get yourself a cup, and then rest up for a couple of hours. Rest? I can't rest. Christopher, it's no good going. What are you going to do? You, you, you can't help anything. You'll be stumbled through a hatch, half asleep, and break your neck. Go on and get some coffee. One way or another, we've got to hold out for two more days. <laughs> The light was on in the steward's galley, and the coffee pot was standing on the stove. It was still warm, so I didn't bother to heat it. I poured out a cup, carried it over, and set it on the porcelain tabletop in the center of the room. I started to light a cigarette. The door of the pan cupboard beneath the sink was standing slightly ajar, and I happened to glance down toward it. Out from the dark interior of the cupboard shone two glittering points of light two inches apart. I dropped the cigarette and moved slowly backward. I'd found the Bushmaster. As I moved, the snake slid out of the cupboard in a single sinuous glide and drew back into a loose coil on the galley floor, never taking his eyes off me. I moved slowly back, waiting any moment for that deadly slithering strike. How had he known it was me? He'd stayed quiet when Bowman was here. How did he know to pick the first time in three days when I didn't have a gun? Well, my hands touched the wall behind me and I stopped. Only then I realized in terror what I'd done. The call button and the door were on the far side of the room. I'd backed into a dead end. 
I stared at the snake in fascination, expecting any moment the ripping slash of those poison fangs. The horrid coils tightened a little, and then were still again. Ten million years of evolution to produce this moment. Homo sapiens versus Lachesis muta. Man against mute fate, and all the odds were on fate. I knew then that I was going to die. I could feel the sweat run down between the painted wall and the palms of my hands pressed against it. My skin crawled and twitched, and the pit of my stomach was as cold as ice. There was no sound but the rush of blood in my ears. The snake shifted again, drawing into a tighter coil, always tighter. Why the devil didn't he get it over with? And then, for just an instant, his head veered away. Something moved over by the stove. I didn't dare turn to look at it. Slowly, it moved out into my line of vision. It was a cat, that scrawny cat Clara that Mother Willis had sneaked aboard in LaGuaira. Its back was arched and every hair stood on end. It moved stiff-legged now, walking in a half circle around the snake. The Bushmaster shifted slowly and kept watching the cat. He tightened. He was going to strike at any second. He struck and missed. The cat was barely out of reach. Now she was walking back and forth again. She was asking to die. Missed again by a fraction of an inch. He was striking now without even going to a full coil. Missed again and again, always missing by the barest margin. Each time the cat danced barely out of reach, and each time she countered with one precise spat of a dainty paw, bracing her skinny frame on three stiff legs. And then suddenly I realized what she was doing. The Bushmaster was tiring, and one strike was just an instant slow. But in that split second, sharp claws raked across the evil head and ripped out both of the lidless eyes. That cat had deliberately blinded the snake. Well, he didn't bother to coil now, but slid after in a fury, striking wildly and rapidly, always missing, and every strike was a little slower than the last one. Until finally, as the snake's neck stretched out at the end of a strike, the cat made one leap and sank her razor-sharp teeth just back of the ugly head, sank them in until they crunched bone. With tooth and claw, she clung as the monster snake flailed and lashed on the floor, striving to get those hideous coils around her, trying to break her hold, to shake off the slow and certain paralyzing death that gradually crept over him and at last stilled his struggles forever. I took a deep breath, the first in minutes. The cat lay on her side on the floor, panting, resting from the fight just over. And she had a right to rest. That mangy, brave, beautiful alley cat had just saved my life, and maybe others as well. But as I turned toward the stove, I suddenly became very humble, and I knew all at once what a small thing a human being really is. I and others aboard were still alive only by the merest accident. There were three reasons why that cat had fought and killed the world's deadliest snake, and those three reasons came tottering out from under the stove on shaky little legs. Three kittens with their eyes bright with wonder and their tails stiff as pokers. Up on the decks, hundreds of passengers were waiting for the news that the days and nights of terror were ended. Well, I could wait a little longer. I pulled open the doors of the cabinet, found a can of milk, and then I dropped down on my knees on the floor of the galley.
I guess there goes me on fucking cats and pets. <laughs> this fucking thing just saved Jack Webb's life, so I guess now I gotta like pets again. Anyway, <laughs> pretty cool uh, story, and um, I was thinking about some other crap. It's so funny. I got here on uh, early today because I went and bought that cheaper phone plan. Like I got a uh, Metro, right? And instead of getting the um, the my normal little fifty dollar plan, which is way too fucking expensive, but the uh, the forty dollar plan because I wanted ten bucks to spend, and. Um, as soon as like what is it the tenth by the eighth like the, your time and use is done basically so like welcome back to fifty not even that like fourteen point four fucking <laughs> dial up speed shit man you can't even listen to a fucking podcast on that shit it's crazy um you know what are you gonna do so down here they got fucking Wi Fi kicked back did a little cleaning in here mopped up whoop 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 shit was nice anyway um super funny oh yeah so we missed last week uh because it was labor day yeah that's it and um anyway i thought we'd do another one because this is super fun on mutiny radio with um mr vincent price in a three skeleton key Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight... We escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence as we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests Three Skeleton Key, starring Vincent Price. Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the lighthouse rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water, gray-green scum dappled, warm as soup and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-o-war, and yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this weren't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. A wind that had smelled the slow and frightful death that came one night to this bare black rock. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went. And up. Yes, up and up and round and round. Past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, casks of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans and up. And up and up, round and round. 
Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room, and over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty, big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about, bouncing, blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors, glittering and refracting through her lenses. The whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. She was a sweetheart of a light. And at night, she'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with her revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. And it wouldn't be bad, the other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind, and it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste. What a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the Basque country. Black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that I tell you, those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was, and what word he let go was law. A silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation, the most I could ever get out of him was... Jean, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They want to talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You, you're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they send me somebody... That was Louis. When he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down because August was the talkingest man I'd ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. Yes, indeed. Played in over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous horrible, the way we used to scare the audiences. I I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand. Yes, gave it up completely. I really did. Couldn't stand it any longer. It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers, and the big yellow stars, when out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. Master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled, Louis! Louis! Couldn't understand it. I waited for the light to come around again. Why is that? Ship headed for the reefs. Coming right up. 
I had the glasses out now. I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Can't they see? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. Yeah, the square heads. What is it? What is it? Watch north, northwest. I know. I know what it is. Uh, what? The Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman. We did a play about her once. Oh, what a performance. You ghastly, gallian, hag-ridden, cursed-ribbon, must on... Shut up, will you? She's loving. Yes. Sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. The crew left her for some reason or other. But instead of sinking, she's gone on. Running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. A beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. But as we waited for the crash, she luffed again, caught some odd gust and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, heeling and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to a pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief? She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? What? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? This is impossible. Absolutely impossible. What? Here, take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. What is it you... I had to focus, and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no mi- I don't know, an endless number of enormous rats. See them? Yes, I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing? Here, give me a look. Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look, chatterbox. Give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes. <sighs> She's going to turn. She better turn soon. <sighs> suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's low tide. Yes. Yes, it is. Where's all the conversation, August? Huh? Here, want the glasses again? <sighs> What another look? No, no. She's still coming on. Go away! Go away! Turn, will you? Turn, I say, I pray you, turn! She's cracking up. The rats! Look, on the water! Like a carpet! They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship's rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below! It's open! Come on! Down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared? You bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Right, Chief. But hurry, hurry! Look, 
See them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at the millions. They smell us. Here they come. Close the door. Can't, can't it stop? Yeah. Let me. Oh, move, you move. Made it. Holy. That was close. One got in. Look, there. Get him! Watch him. He's kicking. He was as big as a tarot bigger. And his eyes were wild and red, his teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for a starving, ravenous, and we fought him, fought that one rat all over the room. It was, oh, believe me, I do not exaggerate, it was like fighting a panther. Got him. We better get aloft. As we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels. And at every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louie, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them! Will you look at them? It's a nightmare. Will you look at them? The air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass all about us. We could not see the sky, nothing, nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling hairy snouts, and their teeth. The rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three, we stood very quietly. Oh, very, very quietly in the center of the classroom under our beautiful light. And we waited. What can we do? Take it easy, old man. Take it easy. I can't. I just can't. It won't do any... won't do any good to stand here and shake. Uh, that's right. Anybody want a cigarette? Yes. Yes, I have one. Thank you. Good boy. We've got to keep calm about this thing. Here's a light. <laughs> yeah, they don't like the fire, do they? <laughs> Guess not. Give me another match. You don't like that much, do you, I say? Don't rile them, August. Give me some more matches. I'll strike them and strike them and strike them until they get scared and go away. They won't go away. <laughs> Not until... Finish it, Chief. Not until what? Not until they've been... fed... take just so much horror and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us and they could rush at us, but that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. Only it had drowned some of them. Ships rats don't drown. <laughs> no, sir, you cannot drown one of them. They're all climbing up the tower. This bunch around us is getting thicker. Yeah. Say, what's the time? Quarter of six. Uh, you've got first watch, John. Right. Uh, wake me at ten. I will. Come along, August. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. 
Sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamps. The coffin lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. Then I started the rotary motor. Life drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce stabbing bar of light, moving continually about, ever turning, ever touching, ever moving around and around. And they twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light. The bright light moving and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light, blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. Louie relieved me at ten, but I didn't get much sleep that night, and when I came up into the gallery early next morning... There stood August, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms and making a speech. I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Prelate, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of the Marechal into the nether parts. <laughs> Do not be frightened, little children. I will not kept hurt turning. you. I much. stood staring at him hard. Struck, but he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving no one out. August! August! Another one, a latecomer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. August, Move stop over it, there. Stop it. Let the gentleman be but seated. He didn't come, stop. Come, he went on, bowing and scraping to the rats, his big blue eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arms, slapped his face. He looked at me like a child, and then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below, go on. Oh, very well then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today. Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes, sounds horrible. It was fun. We could get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away trying to get at our eyes. Louis was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall 110 feet to the surf below. Sharks. They're eating them. Yeah, the sharks are our friends. Yeah, yeah. I'll get another bunch together. <laughs> yeah, my beauties. That's it. Pile of kill each other. <laughs> there they go. August joined in too. Oh, very ingenious August. He learned that if he spread-eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look. 
my portrait in rats. It went on all day, and then I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired, and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. Couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp, and went to the window. Even as I looked at it, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, Louis, come huh? quick! What? What is it? They found a way in. I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy body thudding against the other side as the window gave way. That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. So what was that? I don't know. It came from below. The storeroom window. Oh. They're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Right. Two of them got in. Let's go after them. We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed the marlin spike, swung and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louis with the other. It had ripped his hand open and the blood was pouring all over the place. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. My hand! He got my hand! That's both of them, Louis. I'll, I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it! My, my blood! I'm bleeding! Now, don't worry about it, Louis. Here, look. I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood! There, now. It's not bad. Just the flesh. And then I became conscious of another new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood fascinated. Even as I did, it began to give way, and a bristling, whiskery nose showed through. Louis, Louis, we've got to go up. Next level was the middle quarters in the kitchen. I slammed the trap door there, too, but it, too, was wood. My blood. What are we going to do? Hell no. We'll be through this one in a moment. The gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. We made it. We lay across the trap door exhausted. While below us, the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather. And all about us, the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. The hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. <laughs> Would you like to come in, my beauties? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in, you know. August was standing by the glass, and in one hand he held a wrench. He was 
tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet and slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is tap just a little harder. And, uh, uh. I found a coil of wire in the toolkit and I trussed him up. Fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company, and all about watching our little drama, The Rats. The day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. We had only one way of summoning them, and that was to shoot off distress rockets, but the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay, thirst-tormented, starving, waiting, waiting, and... The following night, I again tended the light, but the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, about midnight, the light went out. There's nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. When I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about us. Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then, the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I wanted to open the windows to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but was afraid. What if, what if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or crewman off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. 
The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. August, insane asylum, he never recovered. And Louis, they took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Oh, yes. Well, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. No, no mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse, I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Price on Escape. Now, just a couple of quick fun facts about Escape. Escape uh, was basically came out between like the uh, 1947 and 54. Um, <clears throat> it has the classic line, of course, are you tired of the everyday grind? Have a dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Now, Escape's like the sister program to Suspense. It may have started before, but I I'm, could be wrong, so let's not fucking deal with that. But anyway... Um, cool thing about it is it was kind of like a summer replacement program for, uh, for suspense, but it would kind of be on and off the schedule and shit, but there's really like over 200 episodes or something to sit through and they're really good. Okay. Anyway, um, there's this thing that's going on right now. Of course, the, uh, hurricane is as I speak, it's so fucked up because it's so gorgeous out here today in uh, San Francisco. And just to know, I'm watching these live feeds of just water, like, I don't know, hip deep rolling through Miami right now. And it's crazy that this lady was, she just wrote like, um, I can't believe there are people looting. In fact, police just shot a, um, uh, one guy and arrested another guy from stealing in somebody else's house. Uh, that's fucked up but um both all all of that but this is what gets me about that person who wrote like um i can't believe people are looting because i've been saying this exact same shit for a lot of years not that they've been looting but um this little tweet i'm gonna read or facebook post i'm gonna read right now you know i'm pretty much a thousand percent okay with anyone in houston jacking a flat screen tv i mean you're gonna have multinationals rip up rare earth minerals out of Africa at gunpoint and ship them to China to be assembled into a TV in some factory where they got nets on the roof to stop them from jumping off. You're going to put it on a boat crewed by a bunch of Filipinos who are going to find out if they get to port that the boat owner defaulted and isn't paying them. And if they complain, they'll get blacklisted. Slap that shipping container onto a truck where the trucker is in debt and working at almost a no-profit margin from an owner-operator scheme and can't even unionize because he's not a worker. 
slap the TV in some big box store where an 80-year-old woman gets whose benefits got cut is working the register because her son can't support her anymore because his factory job got outsourced to prison labor, and now he works at a burger joint while pundits shout that if burger flippers wanted better wages, they should have learned to work in manufacturing. Now, have a hurricane run through town and flood the place after fossil fuel companies spent decades paying politicians to ignore the warnings while they rip up the mountains and the prairies, poison the water in the air, and then hotbox the whole planet. So now we got 500 and 100 year storms happening every couple of years. Then you take some guy whose farm went belly up because U.S. government subsidized corn flooded into Mexico and whose hometown got overrun by cartel fueled by U.S. drug money. So he ran across the border to make a living in Texas. And he and his family decided not to run from the storm because ICE is deporting every undocumented worker they catch back to God knows what future. And that motherfucker decides once the whole city is flooded and everything is hell, fuck it. At least I can watch Game of Thrones in HD next season. Is that where you draw the line, right? That's the line, right? That's the line. Oh, well, that look, fuck that guy. What about all those motherfuckers that got the TV to the store? You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, what's, what's stealing, you know? Anyway, here's a cool little tweet. Um... Because uh, normally one of my buddies here, we do uh, a couple of tweets, so I'm going to do this one. And this is from Jeremy McClellan Comedy, because I always like comedians. <laughs> Florida is currently uh, undergoing the largest evacuation in U.S. history. Millions of people are fleeing Hurricane Irma, the most powerful storm to ever make landfall in North America. Now imagine if no other state would take them in. Imagine if Georgia and Alabama built walls to keep them out. Imagine if we forced them to stay put and drowned. Sounds evil, right? Well, that's what we do every day around all over the world. From Mexicans fleeing the violence from drug cartels, Syrians fleeing a civil war, Yemenis fleeing forced starvations, Palestinians expelled from their homes, to Rhodesia fleeing gen- genocide in Myanmar. We know in our hearts that this is wrong. We know that if, that if humans have rights at all, they have the right to flee certain death. We know this. It's time we start acting like it. Anyway, let's play a little more fucking um, cheap trick. For a little Speed Gibson Secret Police ISP. Now, I'm I'm not going to start it from the first one. I'm going to start from the second one because that's where Speed's inducted to the Secret Police. Speed Gibson of the International Secret Police. Ceiling zero, ceiling zero, ceiling zero, ceiling 
In the first episode, you remember, Clint Barlow, brilliant young operator of the International Secret Police, was called to his chief's headquarters for details of a new case concerning the activities of the octopus, the most dangerous criminal alive. With Clint was Barney Dunlap, his right-hand man. During their absence, a member of the octopus gang came to Clint's rooms, and in spite of the presence of Speed Gibson, Clint's 15-year-old nephew, sought to go through the operator's papers. Speed knocked the man unconscious with the model of the China Clipper that he was constructing, and now we find Speed, Clint, and Barney in the chief's office with their sullen prisoner, Blackie Spears. Why did you go to Barlow's room, Blackie? I ain't talking. He did plenty of talking to me, Chief Riley. He knew that Clint and Barney were on their way here. Said our telephone wires had been tapped, and he'd heard you talking to Clint. And he arrived shortly after Clint and Barney left, huh? Yes, sir. Well, that means he must have been in the same building. Maybe he took a room there, too. But why? Why was my phone line tapped? Now, how did he know anything was in the wind? The octopus has ways of knowing things, Clint. Almost before anyone else knows about them. Blackie, it'll be a little easier on you if you'll tell us what you know. You're in a secret police. Supposing you find all that out for yourself. Let me smack him one, Chief. No, Barney. Keep your fist to yourself. We'll keep Blackie Spears with us for a while. Maybe he won't talk to us, but neither will he be able to talk to his gang or be able to get word to the octopus as to what's happened. You can't keep me here. No, can't we? You force an entrance into my rooms, admit to my nephew that you tap my phone wires, then you go through my private papers. We can keep you here all right. Yeah? If it hadn't been for that kid slugging me with his aeroplane, you guys never would have touched me. I'll get you for that, Speed Gibson. You just try anything and I'll sock you again. That's the Speed aren't going to help you any, Blackie. Take him out, Barney. Tell Kelly to put him in solitary. Yes, sir. Come on, tough guy. You can't do this to me, I tell you. The gang will rub you out. Ah, save your breath. We don't scare you. <laughs> well, I guess that takes care of Blackie Spears, all right. Yeah, thanks to you, Speed. If you hadn't used your wits, he'd have gotten away or perhaps shot it out with Clinton Barney when they returned before he expected them. <laughs> That's right, Chief Riley. And all because Barney forgot his hat. Well, he made me sore going through Clint's papers like that. And the secret police books I've been studying say that you should never give a criminal an even break. <laughs> Something to that effect, Speed. The idea is that the criminal never gives a detective a chance, so it's better to capture him first, disarm him, and then start talking. I sure smashed my china clipper on his head. <laughs> Didn't do his head any good, either. Has a lump on it about the size of an egg. Speed, how would you like to fly in the real china clipper? The real clipper? Oh, gee, Chief. Honest? Now, wait, now hold on there, Speed. Now, what do you mean, Chief? Well... You remember I said something over the phone about using speed on this job, Clint? And I said no. Oh, Clint. Supposing you hear the whole story before making a decision, Clint. Our Far East operator sent word by code that the octopus has reared his ugly head in China. Hong Kong, to be exact. What's his racket this time? Smuggling. Dope and natives. Running dope in and natives out. Doing it on a wholesale scale. His enormous and very effective organization makes his illegal business a lot safer than most legal businesses. And far more profitable. And the best way to combat the evil is at the source. China. Mm -hmm. You want Barney and me to break it wide open, huh? Yes. You're to take the next clipper ship. It leaves day after tomorrow. I've already reserved passage for you. You proceed to Hong Kong at once. Good. Doesn't give us much time, but I've done more unless. Lucky, though, you reserved the passages. Yes, for you, Barney, and Speed. Oh, boy! Oh, now, listen, Chief. Now, Speed doesn't fit into this picture. I wouldn't think of taking him into that hotbed of danger. He's already in it, Clint. I said before that the octopus has ways of knowing things. Perhaps he already knows of Speed's part in Blackie's capture. Once you leave for China, no matter where, you may send your nephew. His life will be in actual danger. Well, that's true. On but... the other hand, the octopus will never dream that he's traveling with you. In fact, he can have no knowledge that you're crossing on the China Clipper. 
And this is where your uncanny knowledge of makeup may bring you close to the octopus. Oh, you mean I should use a disguise? Huh? Well, you've never been yourself on any job you've undertaken. That's been one of your secrets of success. No criminal knows how the real Clint Barlow looks except Blackie Spears. And his knowledge won't do him any good for a long time. That's right, Clint. You know more about makeup than any actor. Well, you can change your whole appearance by just adding a little to your nose, or changing your eyebrows, or taping your eyes. Yes, the stage lost an excellent actor. And the secret police gained its best operator. But I not only want you to travel under an assumed face and personality, Clint, but Barney and Speed as well. No one is to know who you are. Your safety lies in your lost identity. Well, it's an old story to me, Chief, but as for Speed here, Please I Please let don't me know. go, Clint. I can help out in all sorts of ways. I'm counting on you, Speed. Your quick thinking in Blackie's case convinced me that you can help us in the capture of the octopus. You'll never be in the front line, so to speak. That'll keep him out of actual danger, Clint. But you as a boy will be able to see and learn things that an adult cannot. You bet I will. Oh, gee, Clint. Can I go? Can I? Well, after what Chief Riley has said about the danger of leaving you here, and if I can use makeup on you, uh... All right. Yes, you can go. I, I can't see anything else now. Wee! Oh, boy, what an adventure this is going to be. Not an adventure, Speed. But hard, dangerous work. The odds are tremendously against capturing the octopus. But you can't fail. And now, I have here full details as to the course I've laid out for you, Clint. Oh, but first I must swear Speed into the International Secret Police. Are you ready to take the oath, Speed? I... I'm ready, sir. Then listen carefully. And see if you're still willing to join our force after hearing the oath. Yes, sir. Raise your right hand. Do you, Speed Gibson, as a member of the International Secret Police, promise to obey and protect law and order in your own country or wherever else your duties may carry you? Will you cooperate with the foreign police after you have fulfilled your mission? And will you, above all else, recognize the code of the secret police? Courage, honor, and silence. And not betray it in any manner whatsoever? I promise, sir. <sighs> You've bitten off a large hunk there, fellow. And I welcome our newest and youngest member. Thank you, Chief. <laughs> What's going on here? Barney, I'm a member of the International Secret Police now. And I'm going with you to capture the octopus. Yeah, huh? That's right, Barney. After we get our orders from the Chief, we're off. Off where? Alameda. After I change our appearance with makeup. Alameda? You mean... We're taking the China Clipper day after tomorrow. <laughs> Speed. Isn't it a beauty? Look at that wing spread. Yeah, I hope them wings are spreading up to take us where we're going. <laughs> oh, doggone this mustache. <laughs> What's the matter, Barney? Oh, this phony misplaced eyebrow you stuck on my upper lip tickles. <laughs> it sure looks like it grew there, though, Barney. And that squint that Clint gave you, I never know you in a million years. Yeah, well, I wouldn't know you either. What with them specs you're wearing and the way Clint made your nose thinner by shading it with grease paint. You look real studious. Not like the guy that knocked Blackie over the head with a clipper model. <laughs> and Clint looks kind of foreign, don't he? With his hair dyed black and curled. He darkened his skin, too, and wearing kind of foreign clothes. Like a Frenchman. Well, now, don't forget that I'm supposed to be your French tutor, Speed. Now, wait. Have you got the whole story straight? I think so. 
Barney here's supposed to be my dad. We're from Texas. Yeah. He's kind of rich from his oil wells and wants me to grow up a gentleman. And you're supposed to help make me one, teaching me French and manners. Now, the whole thing's crazy, if you ask me. Yeah, but nobody's asking you. You just stick to that story. Uh, what's your name? My... Now, I know you're crazy. Oh, not your real one, your assumed name. Oh, um, Fletcher, Jim Fletcher. And speed here is Earl. <laughs> Earl Wells, get it? <laughs> yes, and I'm Pierre Dorset. Now, I'm going to speak with a very slight French accent. And uh, you'd better use a drawl, Bonnie. What should I use? Oh, you talk as you always do, Speed. It'll be safer because you're not as old in the game as we are. You might forget to keep up an accent. Well, anyhow, you're getting an education from your French tutor and by traveling around the world. Hot ziggity! Uh oh, now don't say things like that. In fact, the less you say in public, the better. Kind of carries out the student idea. <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to be thinking instead of talking. Say, the winding up the clipper motors. Yeah, won't be long now. Better warming them up. Gee, I'm so excited, I don't know what to do. Just think, I'm really going to fly in the China Clipper. Wait a minute, what's wrong? That man in that blue shirt suit standing right over there. Remember him, Barney? Say, wasn't he in on that jewel smuggling racket three years ago? Right. One of the cleverest smugglers in the business. But we caught him, and I thought he was safe behind the bars for a good long time. He must have been paroled. Yeah, but why is he going on the China Clipper at this time? Say, I wonder if he's going in with the octopus on his smuggling. Hmm, we don't even have to wait to get to China before we start meeting up with that gang. Well, maybe I'm all wrong. Maybe his going is pure coincidence. And then again, maybe not. You think he'll recognize you and Barney, Clint? No, Steve. Our disguise is entirely different. On the board for the China Clipper. Stops at Honolulu, Midway Island, Wake Island, Guam, Manila, and the Orient. Gee, now we can go aboard. Oh, wait, wait a minute, Steve. Let our friend in the Blue Surge get aboard first. What happens when we get to Manila? We'll wait and see what happens aboard the Clipper first, Barney. Can we go now, Clint? The flight crew has gone aboard. Yes, but remember... Now on, when there's anyone else within hearing distance, you're Earl Fletcher, Barney is Jim Fletcher, and I'm Pierre Dorsey. You got it? Yes, Monsieur Dorsey. Monsieur Dorsey. Now watch yourself. Here comes some other passengers and... Wait a minute. What do you see? That man in the blue serge suit. He's talking to that little guy in the checkered suit. Yeah, and they're looking straight at us. Clint, that guy has spotted us. He's recognized us. They're going to keep us from getting aboard. He's calling that policeman. Come on, we've got to make it. <laughs> things about the fucking hurricane one the dumb fucking governor who just had to throw in an all lives matter bullshit and then two we got reporter heroes now is that the thing anyway i'm gonna fucking play us off with some cheap trick um let's play something slow and low for those fucking 
um, poor damn people. Or fuck it, just play whatever's next. Have a great night. This is G Money Wolstein. Take care of yourself. You think that smuggler really knew who you both were? Well, I don't know, Steve. Criminals are suspicious of everything and everyone. He may have glimpsed something familiar about it, or his instinct may have warned me. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of high flying on the same ship? Are you on a raft? Yeah, all that business about him being a We'll gather around me, see dogs, and get aboard the pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio dot FM. From there, you can capture your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of you listening They've got the live comedy. Just get out of business advice. LGBT friendly Vinyl together. Mutiny Radio has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer. I bet my pen leg on it. Or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat.
<laughs> How long is the stop over at Honolulu? Oh, just about 24 hours. We'll take off again the next morning, uh, providing the weather is right. And am I going to make use of them 24 hours? No sleeping for me. I'm going to go swimming at Waikiki Beach, eat fish and poi, listen to ukuleles, and maybe watch some of those hula dances I've been hearing so much about. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere fun. Every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey.
Fire Sale Franciski. If you're looking for some delicious late night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside, you can find counter offer, and my offering you amazing late night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini. And creamy-licious mac and cheese. You like tacos? They get them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer inside of Brenda's Bar at 800 South Van Ness Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street in the Mission District. Open seven nights a week from 5 to 10 p.m. or later. Counter offer, son! Anything you try has already been done before, and there's nothing really you can do about it. So remember to avoid taking risks and to whisper into feathers together in the dark. It's the right thing to do, and viewers like you. When the circus is in town, it's time for a train ride. The best circus town train rides are the dependable ones that'll depart and arrive on time. The ones that'll take you from clown to trapeze quad to elephant, see? Now come on the train with the circus promise. It's intense. Listen to Shaggy's Soul Shakedown Party tonight. Alright folks, as you know, as you know, Shaggy's Soul Shakedown is every Thursday. Every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. here on MutinyRadio.fm. What's with the limp? I got hit by a car on my bike. This person just ran a red light. How are you going to work? You wait tables. I don't know. I'm terrified. I count on my tips and these hospital bills are confusing. The insurance adjusters just treat me like I'm a piece of paperwork. Man, you should go to JohnStraussLaw.com. John Strauss is a great personal injury attorney. When I got hurt, he handled everything for me. He was on my side. And best of all, I didn't have to pay out of pocket. He got paid when I did. That's great, because I cannot afford to pay out of pocket. Yeah, don't let them confuse you and trick you. They treat you like you're a business. It's not business. It's personal. Injury. JohnStraussLaw.com 
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts?